Listen, you don't get any points for noticing that it's a long psalm, all right? There's no Blue Peter badge for that. And I know that, because I've been reading it a lot this last couple of days, you get to the end of it and you feel like you do when you've been to Jimmy Chung's Chinese buffet. It's that you're somewhere between, I either want a nap or I'm going to spew. You've taken in too much. But thankfully, Asaph, the writer, knowing that what he is composing is going to be a bit of a beast, thankfully gives us a summary at the start of the psalm. And as you read verses 1 to 8, and read them slowly, there does come a certain simplicity to Psalm 78. Look at the first eight verses. In verses 1 to 3, all he's basically saying is, listen. In verse 4, he's saying, we're going to tell you what God has done. First half of verse 5, he says, we're going to tell you what God has said. Second half of five and into six, he says, we're going to tell that to a coming generation. Verse seven, we're doing that so that positively they would trust God. Verse eight, we're saying that negatively so that they don't rebel. That's the psalm. Listen, we're going to tell you what God's done. We're going to tell you what he's said. We're going to tell it to generations so that positively they trust. Negatively, they don't rebel. You got it? It's simples, as the meerkats say. Now, the simplicity of this psalm can be summed up in something like bridging the generation gaps. See, in Asaph's mind, he is desperate that God's word be passed on to the next generation. That is to say, taking up the language of the first eight verses, it should be instinctive in every Christian that they say, my purpose is to teach and to tell stories to the next generation that encourage faith, counter forgetfulness, and warn against the dangers of rebellion, stubbornness, disloyalty, and unfaithfulness. That's the purpose of every Christian, right? It should be the ambition of every Christian parent, of every Sunday school teacher, of every elder with children or young people under their care, that their ambition is that the next generation would put their trust in God, forget not his deeds, and keep his commands, as verse 7 says. God's word must bridge the generations, and it will be the teaching of God's words that fills the gap between them. And let's remind ourselves tonight, children are designed for another world. They are destined for eternity. Every child has a precious and an immortal soul that will forever be in heaven or in hell. And it is our purpose to prepare them for those destinations. Now, that is what the psalm is saying. The word of God passed to the next generation. But if that is all we see Asaph saying, we have read him too superficially. Because Asaph is not just content about the next generation. So do him a favor and read him carefully. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established his law in Israel which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so that the next generation would know them, even children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. So yes, Asaph is writing lyrics to be sung by his generation. However, 
He is not satisfied with one generation singing the praise of God. He recognizes in verse 5 and 6 that he stands on the shoulders of the ancestors and forefathers who have gone before. And he is to be laying a foundation for the generations that are to come. And looking at verses 5 and 6, there is arguably five generations there. Look at it. Our ancestors, their children, the next generation, children yet to be born, and their children. Asaph is thinking five generations when he's talking about bridging generation gaps. Let's try to summarize this in some kind of snappy idea. Asaph would say to us tonight, listen, you've got to think five when it comes to mission. That if you have a mindset for mission that only views the next generation, your mindset is too small. You've got to think five. You see, my role is not just to pass on God's word. My role is to pass on the fact that God's word must be passed on. You see the difference between those two things? My role, your role, if you're a Christian, is not just to pass on God's word. Your role is to pass on the fact that God's word must be passed on. Each generation must not merely pass on the great gospel, but the great gospel plus the great commission. Every generation is not simply commissioned to evangelize the next generation, but disciple them to the point where they evangelize. Each generation is not simply tasked to make disciples, but to make disciple-making disciples who plant church-planting churches. Each generation is not simply commissioned to make sure their children know the gospel, but to make sure that their children know the goal of the gospel. Have I said that same thing enough times? If you want an illustration, we must teach the next generation not just to catch, but also to pass. Not just to receive the ball, but to play the ball. Because if all they do is catch it, then our church is one generation away from extinction. We've got to think five. I've recently become a dad. And it's made me think a lot. But one thing I must take into consideration with Reuben is, if I'm not thinking about his great-grandchildren, then my view of evangelism is too small. I'm praying that he is not just a Christian when he is older, but that he is an evangelist. You see the difference? Let me put it this way. The litmus test of your generation will be the evangelistic zeal of the next. Now, there are some examples across our city that I've spoken to recently that are very small, dwindling churches made up of godly elderly saints led by elderly elders who can wax lyrical about the golden years. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we had 500 kids in the Sunday school. Do you know that was true in Nidri Community Church? Before it was a church, it was a mission hall. But they were bussing kids in. 500 kids on a Sunday coming to Sunday school. Amazing. But you've got to ask a hard question. 
Why is there not a church of at least 500 people in Nidri today? Do you see? Now, I think there are lots of answers to that question. I've got five written down here. If you want to know the answers, some of them, come and speak to me afterwards. But the only reason I say that is, it is a reminder that apparent success in the Sunday school work of one decade is no guarantee of a thriving church in the next. Our role is not just to pass on God's word. Our role is also to pass on the fact that God's word needs to be passed on. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if the only thing that this generation of Charlotte Chapel gave to the next generation was a building? Wouldn't that be tragic? We need to give them more. Not just the gospel, but that the fact that the gospel needs to be passed on. Got to think five. Now the question is, why does Asaph have this five-generation passion and desire within him? Well, that's why after verses 1 to 8, a beast of a psalm comes. Because Asaph's concern for the coming generations flows from the sinfulness of past generations. His intention about passing God's word to the next five is because he realizes we inescapably inherit the sin of the previous generations. And so he writes a psalm not only to bridge the generation gap, but to show us the generational cycles of sin. Did you feel that as you read the psalm? You feel those cycles that kept on coming as the two boys read? So, secondly, we're going to look at being stuck in the generational cycle. Now, we live uh, in Grace Mount, that's where we're hoping to plant a church. Now, we love our community, love it to bits. I would not want to live anywhere else. But as you live in Gracemount, you see very clearly the impact of one generation's life upon the next. Now, we could talk about that in lots of different ways. You see it when babies are born alcohol fetal or babies born that are addicted to the drugs that their mother was taking when they were in the womb. You see it in lots of cycles, whether it's addiction or unemployment or illiteracy or crime or prison or whatever it might be. But I can guarantee you that although you can see it clear with us, truth is these generational cycles of sin are just as real in any community. And they may be less obvious and they may be more culturally acceptable, but they're definitely there. I would bank everything I've got on the fact that there is as much sin in Greenbank or Cramond as there is in Gracemount. And Asaph wants to show us tonight the generational sin cycles that are present not only in the history of Israel, but in any culture, any society, any people group. Now, this is a long psalm, and I regret choosing it in some ways, just because it's been hard work. But I want to try and show you very quickly in the length of the psalm, this cycle that comes. Let me show you first then. It begins with forgetfulness. The stubborn, rebellious, disloyal unfaithfulness of verse 8 flowed from their forgetfulness in verse 11. Look at it. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown. Now, don't be mistaken. This is not 
innocent forgetfulness. This is not me driving home tonight and getting back to the house and saying, Sarah, I'm so sorry I forgot to buy milk on the way home. That's not this forgetfulness. This is the forgetfulness that is, it's like selective memory. Any of you have selective hearing? You know that phrase? When we hear what we want to hear, husbands and wives are looking at each other saying, you've got that. When I was a kid, right, if my dad came through the front door and the announcement was made that he had donuts from Greg's, I had the hearing of a dog. But if he suggested that there was help needed with the dishes, I bumped into this strange sporadic deafness that my GP could not diagnose. Selective hearing. You've had that? Here in Psalm 78 is not selective hearing, but selective memory. It is when we remember God whenever it suits us, but we willfully forget him whenever it suits us too. Isn't it funny that it's in temptation that we get our most forgetful? The easiest way to slide into sin is to put to the back of your mind any memory of what God has done for you. When it suits us, we are very quick to remember the seductive pleasure of temptation and very quick to forget the saving power of God. He lists in verses 12 to 16 everything God does in the Exodus. Isn't it fascinating that Exodus-scale memories can be reduced to microscopic insignificance by a sinner bent on satisfying their sinful lusts. That for me, the magnificent hugeness of what Jesus has done for me in Calvary can be reduced to a fleeing memory when I'm bent on satisfying my sinful lust. Selective memory, forgetfulness. The cycles continued by forgetfulness leading to faithlessness. Forgetfulness, faithfulness. Asaph would say, amnesia produces apostasy. And remember that song, Do You Suffer From Long-Term Memory Loss? The next line was, I can't remember. It's on like now 44, I think, in the Macalitia, something like that. Amnesia is an issue, isn't it, for a Christian? But amnesia always brings unfaithfulness. The whole point of Asaph writing the song is to call these things to mind. Remember! Put it to memory. Get it in your head. Because remembering these things will breed faithfulness. And so it's clear the opposite, forgetfulness, will breed faithlessness. Look at verse 22. It's a key verse in the psalm. They did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. We've talked about selective memory. If you want a phrase for this, this is irrational unbelief. That is to say, God had given them every reason under the sun to trust him. In their recent past, parting the Red Sea, delivering them from Egypt, he provided water from a rock, and yet they have the audacity to say, all right, he's done all that, but can he give us bread? It's irrational unbelief. When God has so clearly displayed his power, they still do not trust him. And in that setting, that is absurd. Or most people would say that faith is irrational. Not so when your eyes have been opened to what God has done for us in Christ. At that point, unbelief becomes irrational. 
Makes no sense. But do you live here? Thoughts like, all right, God, you gave your son to die for me, but I doubt whether or not you love me. Irrational unbelief. Or, all right, God, you conquered the grave in the resurrection of Jesus, but I doubt whether or not you can save my loved ones who don't know Jesus. Irrational unbelief. Or, God, you've proved the reality of life beyond the grave, but I doubt the existence of heaven, and so I'm going to store up treasures on earth. Irrational unbelief. It makes no sense in the face of the evidence. But selective memory leads to irrational unbelief. Forgetfulness leads to faithlessness. Now, unsurprisingly, the next phase in the cycle is God's fury. When God sees the irrational unbelief and the selective memory of his people, he is not unmoved. Verse 21, when the Lord heard them, he was furious. Verse 31, God's anger rose against them. When God repeatedly displays his power and gives recurring evidences of his provision and gives continual demonstration of his generosity, forgetfulness and faithlessness, of course, bring his fury. Not a flying off the handle, not losing control of himself, but the settled opposition to humanity's sin. Now remember what Asaph's doing. Bridging the generation gap. Which means the fury of God is a truth we must pass on to the next generation. Unless they hear of his fury at their sin, they will never see their need for a savior from sin. It's interesting, one of the older versions of the Bible in translating Psalm 78 starts off by saying, utter dark sayings to your children. There's a darkness to this. But we must not lose sight of the fact that our children need to see and feel the fury of God at sin. Now, the final expression of God's fury is interesting. In verses 31 to 33, it comes not finally in death, but the next phase of the cycle, in futility. Look at verse 33. So he ended their days in futility and their years in terror. The punishment for his forgetful, faithless people is he makes their existence futile, pointless, meaningless. That is, he gives them what they want. He says to them, all right, if you want a world that has no memory of me and does not believe in me, He hands his people over to what they want. The judgment of God is to allow them to feel the futility, the vanity, the pointlessness, the meaninglessness of a world without him. Now just think about our generation. We have cast off the shackles of religion like never before. We have put to the back of our mind any memory of God. We have affluence like no other generation have had before. We live compared to the rest of the world in absolute luxury. 
and yet we're also popping more antidepressants than we ever have. And they may be prescribed from the NHS, or they may be self-prescribed in weed from a dealer or wine from Waitrose. It doesn't matter what your tipple is. But we are wrestling with this futility, aren't we? As a culture. And Asaph would say, listen, that is not just life, as some people might say. That is the just judgment of God. When God's people live in functional atheism, he allows them to experience the futility that atheism inevitably unleashes. There you go. Now, as we work around the cycle, look at how God's people respond in verses 34 to 35. Whenever God slew them, they would seek him. They eagerly turned to him again. They remembered that God was their rock, that the God Most High was their Redeemer. Model repentance, right? Awareness of sin, realization of judgment, and earnest turning to God as rock and Redeemer. Very nice. Well, read the next verse. Verse 36. But then they would flatter him with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. What's happening? They are bang at it, aren't they? Here they come. God, my rock, my redeemer. Asaph says, shut up. That is not repentance. That is flattery. It's people who have learned the language of the Bible and are using it to try and deceive the God of the Bible. It is saying the right things to avoid the deserved things. It is an eagerness that masks disloyalty. Truth is, Asaph says, you've got a lying tongue that is seeking to cover up your unfaithful heart. You see this in kids, don't you? Ruben's not old enough for this yet. But the kid who comes up and says, Mom, I love you. What have they just done? Something stupid. It's the child saying the right things to manipulate the emotions of the parents to get their right response. It's the child who says, I'm sorry, merely to avoid consequences. And that is not repentance, that is flattery. Do you see the difference? It's the difference between the tears of someone who has just been caught in the act. They are not sorry, they are just sorry they have been caught. But this is so me. And we need to see tonight, God sees the heart, he knows the heart, he wants the heart, and we should not waste our breath with flattery. He can see through our crocodile tears. Now, the cycle gets even more stunning when you look at verse 38. They're flattering, and yet verse 38, yet he was merciful. You would expect forgetful, faithless flattery to result in the cycle being more fury, wouldn't you? If God knows they're at it and they're just flattering him with their lips and their hearts are mild from him, you would think the next phase in the cycle would be 
more fury. And yet God is so merciful that he forgives even their flattering, heartless repentance. He's so merciful that he restrains his just anger time and time and time again. And he has to, because look at verse 40 and 41. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. And the cycle kicks off again. Look at verse 42. What do they do? They do not remember. You go from God's forgiveness right back into their forgetfulness. And the cycle goes on. They move in the history of Israel from the wilderness into the promised land. And yet in the promised land, they do exactly the same things they did in the wilderness. Forgetful, faithless, flattering. Which, by the way, doesn't that disprove the lie that we always tell ourselves that a change in circumstances will change our hearts? Or if only I could get away, life would be better. Life would be different. Trouble is you take your heart with you wherever you go. doesn't matter whether it's the wilderness or the promised land. We are stuck in this endless cycle of forgetful, faithless flattery. And so the generation cycle runs on and on and on and on. For some reason this week I've had in my mind that song, time after time. You know that old song? It's on and on and on and on. That's why it's such a long psalm. But hang on. If this psalm was telling the story of your cycles of sin, how long would it be? Because mine would be longer than 72 verses or whatever it is. Wouldn't yours? Mine would make Bohemian Rhapsody look like a limerick. The amount of times I've felt trapped in this cycle of faithlessness, forgetfulness, flattery. And I would be utterly, utterly ashamed if it was available for you to download on iTunes or recorded as the lyrics in a book like this. Wouldn't you? But Asaph knows that these stories need to be told because part of the way that these generational cycles of sin will be broken is by telling them. See, how are the next generation going to learn from our mistakes if we never tell them our mistakes? The generation that is too proud to confess their sins is the one that dooms the following generation to fall into the same sins. So let me ask you some questions. Have you ever sat your children down and truly confessed the ways in which the example that you have set to them has been more about keeping up with the Joneses than it has been about following Jesus? Have you ever walked your teenage son through your years of gambling addiction that almost bankrupt your family to teach his heart the danger of discontentment and love of money? Have you talked your young one-to-one partner through the consequences that porn has had on your marriage? Have you wept tears with your growth group over a life defined by the fear of man that has meant you have cowered from ever sharing the gospel with your colleagues? What are the generational cycles of sin that we are passing on? 
Because unless we know them, and unless we confess them, the next generation will fall into exactly the same things. Now, let me give one example that for me is pretty close to home and probably will be for many of the boys who have grown up in Charlotte Chapel. As a lad growing up in Charlotte, I, um, I spent a lot of time down at Canty Bay. If you don't know Canty Bay, it was a beach that was donated to uh, the work of the Scouts by a guy called Pi Evans. Now, as you go down to the beach at Canty Bay, as you drive through the gates, on the left-hand side is a pillar which has the name of Pi Evans on it as a donor, but on the bottom right-hand side of the pillar is written 2 Timothy 2.2, which reads... The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. That is to say, the legacy of Pi Evans is pass the gospel on. The word of God must bridge the generation gaps. It's the legacy of Charlotte, of Canty. And growing up at Canty, I'm so, so grateful to God for godly gospel men who taught me the scriptures over and over and over. However, it's not the only thing that I got passed on to me at Canty. See, from a young age, you hear stories at Canty Bay. Age-old tales of fireworks let off in the cottages, breaking into the old disused military of defense properties down the road at night, legends being made of who could burn the most dangerous thing in the fireplace, who could drive to Canty at the highest speed and in the quickest time. Now, it's what my generation inherited. It's what my generation sought to beat. And it's what me and my generation have passed on to the younger lads. But as I've thought about this psalm this week, I think it's an example where disobedience has been excused because it's tradition. I think it's what I've passed on to the young lads, which is actually tragic and heartbreaking because it's a celebration of immaturity. My guess is I've stunted the growth and passed on immaturity to boys beyond the bay and that's probably come into the life of Charlotte Chapel as a whole. See, age doesn't guarantee maturity. Just because you can grow a beard doesn't make you a godly man. We should be more concerned about growing up than trying to grow beards. But listen, boys, we have got to break that cycle. It will take one generation to confess it, another to turn from it, and to pass on a better cycle to the next generation of boys. Now, it may be that. It may be other things that we pass on. But isn't the trouble that we're not only too proud to confess these things, but actually we stubbornly love these cycles. Which is why it's a breath of fresh air that you get to the end of the psalm when Asaph starts to deal with, all right, if we're stuck in these cycles, how on earth do you get out of them? Where we come to the final thing? Breaking the generation cycle. See, for Israel, their only consistency was their inconsistency. Stuck, rolling on, faithlessness, forgetfulness, flattery. And if you read the end of the psalm, it does get to the point where although God's mercy has restrained his anger so far, it will not hold back his full wrath forever. His patience is not eternal. So that you read in verse 67, he rejects Joseph, he does not choose Ephraim, and sin is met with the sword 
and sinners are shamed. He says, enough's enough. I think it's probably worth stopping here and just saying, listen, for those of us who know the agony of family members who have walked away from Christ, there is a comfort here to know that God knows what that feels like. He was the perfect father to Israel. Of course he was. And yet his child Israel was stubborn to the point of no return. He knows what it's like to have a child walk away. But the beauty of Psalm 78 is to say into that agony there is still hope. There is a way that this cycle is broken. There is a way that calls the wanderer home. But actually that feeling that we feel when someone walks away from Jesus should be something that we don't shy away from but that we use as like a zeal to pray and an earnestness to go and proclaim Christ and live Christ that they might come home. Because the gospel does break these cycles. My family's testimony to that. My granddad grew up in a non-Christian home. Correct? And yet wonderfully saved. Then the joy of seeing his mom and dad saved. And the gospel has gone rolling on. The Lord can redeem and save the lost. But how does he do that? Well, Psalm 78, ultimately hope comes not from those stuck within the cycle, but it comes from those outside. Verse 68 Ultimately, hope comes from the choice of God. Look what he does. Verse 69. He establishes his sanctuary, his house. His presence is anchored forever on earth to be the place of stability for sinners tossed around by the waves of their own rebellion. But not only a sanctuary, a home, he chooses a shepherd. See, it's not enough just to have his house, but he says, I'm going to send a shepherd to bring sheep home. And so he chooses, in this time, a working class boy from an unimpressive people group to be the object of his love and the hope for his people. In verse 72, the unchanging guarantee of God's constant care is the shepherd's integrity, his stability amid his people's state of sinful flux. You see, the only hope for sinners stuck in a generational cycle of sin is what? That God would say, this is my home, and this is the shepherd who's going to bring you there. And so the shepherd, for Asaph was David just a prototype. For us, the shepherd of all shepherds, the Lord Jesus Christ, a shepherd who's not only stubborn with our sorry, patient with our stubbornness, but who himself faces the fury of God most high when he dies on a cross. The sanctuary established forever on the heights of Calvary for sinners to run to. His cross, that sanctuary, and him, the shepherd, who skillfully leads me out of my forgetfulness and my selective memory by saying, do this in remembrance of me. 
a skillful shepherd who leads me out of irrational unbelief and says, listen, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. A shepherd who skillfully leads me out of the path of God's fury and says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A shepherd who skillfully leads me out of the futility and meaninglessness of life and says, here is your purpose, go and make disciples. And a shepherd who skillfully, necessarily leads me out of that heartless flattery and produces in me a godly grief that brings repentance that leads to salvation. A shepherd who does for me everything that I cannot do for myself. The shepherd who creates the way out of the cycle for those who could not get out of the cycle themselves. A shepherd who says, listen, that is not the end of the story. A shepherd who says, there is a new story because I'll make you a new creation. The old gone, the new come. And guaranteed the skill of the shepherd is greater than your sin. Now, this is Mission Sunday. The need for mission is desperate because all over our world, what we have is sheep following sheep, following sheep, following sheep, generation after generation. And when sheep follow sheep, follow sheep, guess what the sheep become? Sheep. And what they inherit from the previous generation of sheepness is sheepness. Which, if you've studied sheep, is stupidity and stubbornness. And so when sheep follow sheep, what is needed is a new story that comes with a new shepherd. Mission is about sheep being introduced to a shepherd they've never met. Mission is about helping sheep to realize that stubbornness and stupidity is not the only option. There is a shepherd to lead them. There is a shepherd who can lead them out of death. There is a shepherd who will lead them to the safety of his sanctuary. And that is the point of passing on, bridging the generation gaps. To make sure that it is not sheep follow sheep follow sheep, but that sheep are quickly introduced to the shepherd. And then are equipped to introduce other sheep to the shepherd. Wherever in the world there are sheep, we must go long enough not only to tell them the gospel, but stay long enough to equip them to pass that gospel on. Sheep without a shepherd die. But sheep with the shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ are brought through death to everlasting life. Because as a good shepherd, he lays down his life for his sheep. So here's our task, to pass the gospel on, but not just pass the gospel on, but to pass on the fact that the gospel needs to be passed on, so that it is not in our world sheep followed by sheep followed by sheep, but it is sheep who are very quickly introduced to the good shepherd. Up for that? People are in desperate need of the shepherd that only Jesus can be. Shall I pray? Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we can call you 
our shepherd. And so we shall not be in want. And Father, we pray that we would not just know the shepherd ourselves, but that you would give us a compassion for shepherdless sheep, like that gut-wrenching compassion Jesus felt when he saw the crowds. And that we would be those who are quick not only to pass on news of the shepherd, but to equip others to pass on that same news. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.